Yeah, I I agree. I mean, so yeah, I'm glad you highlighted that. In in some ways, that's kind of the uh, the plot twist at the end of the book. It's like, wait, this is actually not a story about AI. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. I am excited to introduce my first return guest on the show, Brian Christian. I knew from the very first time we talked that I for sure wanted to do a part two with him. This wasn't through any great feat of perspicacity, but uh, namely it was because we didn't even get the opportunity to talk about his latest book, The Alignment Problem. In the first conversation, we talked about Brian's background in poetry and computer science. We talked at length about how he became a writer and the process behind his first book, The Most Human Human. Now, in this conversation, we go deep on the alignment problem. The book's been out for more than a year now, so it's, it's gotten some pretty good coverage. One of my favorite interviews Brian did was with Ezra Klein, so that's definitely worth checking out as well. But uh, all, all that considered, I did try to get at some ways of framing Brian's work and some details of what he covered that opened up different avenues of discussion about the book. Overall, the book is about the development of artificial intelligence, and throughout each chapter, we see AI become increasingly capable of accomplishing more nuanced tasks, and importantly, by extension, tasks which become increasingly embedded into the fabric of our society. And there is the problem of the alignment between our values and the values embodied by the machines. So whereas uh, a lot of interviews on this show go really deep on an author's backstory, this one very much is focused on the content. If you do enjoy this episode or have enjoyed any of my previous ones, I would really appreciate it if you'd give the show a five-star rating on iTunes. It helps a ton in bringing in new listeners. I would also really appreciate it if you could subscribe to Cog Revolution through whichever platform you're listening now. And if you would like to check out the rest of my work beyond the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter at codycommerce.substack.com. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is Brian Christian. But I guess I'd like to start by, you know, I guess at, at its core, I think the alignment problem tells a story. It's not necessarily an argument per se, but it is it is fundamentally uh, a piece of narrative nonfiction. And so I would like you, you know, in, in, your, in your own words, uh, and I've got my own theory about this, what is the story and what, what is it about? As you say... It is not a book that makes an argument, at least not explicitly. Um, and, you know, I have a bigger philosophy around this, which is that I think if you're writing a 400, 500 page book that makes a specific argument, you have a lot of work to do to justify why it should be that long. You know, if you can make the claim in one sentence, um, then I think there's, there's work to be done to justify why is it a book and not an essay or something like that. Um, I, I also, I have a certain personal bias that, um, you can, 
you can kind of incept an idea into someone's mind more readily if you do it in a sort of approachable, relatable way than if, if you come sort of guns blazing. Now, that's not everyone agrees with that, you know. So there are other books in the AI safety space that are very much that sort of like, here's the claim. If you don't believe the claim, here are the reasons why you're wrong. You know, and there are many books that we could name that are structured that way. And so in part, that's just not my style. In part, I felt like, well, the fact that those books exist means that there's room for a different way of approaching it. And so um, to the degree that the book convinces the reader about AI safety, it does so almost by osmosis of, of just sort of telling a story of here are a bunch of people doing practical things with AI and it goes wrong again and again and again. Um, and by the end of the book, you've been, I think, persuaded that there's something that we need to worry about here. So the, the book as I see it uh, tells the history of the field of machine learning you know, going all the way back to the 19th century in some cases, um, the early 20th century and others. Um, and it tells sort of a human story of the history of ideas and how we got here and, and what were some of those key moments. Um, and it also paints a picture of the field as it exists today. Um, the uh, kind of first first generation of graduate students, postdocs coming through the ranks that are really staking their careers on this question of how do we make machine learning safe? How do we make it ethical? Um, and, you know, part of what I wanted to do there, I mean, I had many aims with the book, but part of what I wanted to do by focusing so much on these young people, you know, a lot of the people that the book talks about are like in their late 20s, um, is to portray the field as dynamic, exciting, um, rapidly growing in a way that's going to attract other bright people, bright young people, you know, whether you're a high school student, undergrad, whether you've just gotten a PhD and you're thinking about what to work on, you know, in, in industry, et cetera. Um, I thought I could do a little bit of a part, you know, play, play a part in kind of building the field. So there were a lot of a lot of different goals that went into it, but that's that's a little bit of, of how I think about the book. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So part of my, yeah, so I, at, from the experience of the reader sort of coming into it, I guess my summary of the story is, it's similar to what you were saying, It's but I, it feels like you're watching AI be built slowly, piece by piece. That there's a kind of unpacking or, or piling on of the geological layers. And this part of this is, you know, has to do with how you structure the book and everything. But each layer builds on the last. And you can see AI throughout the chapters, throughout the book, becoming more and more capable of different kinds of things, uh, attaining a high level of complexity and further nuance, that sort of stuff. And you go all the way from basic representational capacity to curiosity and social cognition and things that you don't normally think of as the purview of stodgy old, you know, uh, good old fashioned artificial intelligence. And uh, so that's, I think, one of the cooler feelings of the reader is that 
uh, layered historical narrative of, okay, here's what AI can do now. Here's what AI can do now. And it just builds, uh, and, and there's lots of impressive accomplishments throughout. It's not like all the trivial ones at the beginning, and, uh, but there's, there's that kind of building effect uh, that, that, act, that, that reads really nicely as, um, uh, as a reader. Um, yeah, so it, I, think, I think you accomplished uh, a lot of your, your goals there, and that was a really cool thing to see. But uh, in terms of what it's about, um, uh, I, I, I guess at first glance, uh, when you see the summary coming into it and you see the, okay, the alignment problem, uh, okay, I kind of kind of see what that is. It sounds like what we need to do is align AR, AI with our values, right? That's the alignment problem. But I guess the way I, I came to think about it throughout the book was that it's sort of like the hard problem and easy problem of consciousness. Uh, so to take that tangent quickly, it's like the easy problem is finding out uh, what we'd call the neural correlates of, of consciousness, right? So what are the neural or computational configurations that produce consciousness? It's not a trivial problem. It's not easy in that sense. It's, it's plenty difficult, but uh, it is tractable. We know how to solve those kinds of problems. But the hard problem of consciousness is figuring out why subjective states exist at all, why there's something you know, it feels like to have a certain kind of brain state in the first place. You're the philosophy of my major. You can, of course, correct me uh, in, in any details there. But, uh, you know, the basic idea is that the hard problems is, is hard because it's not at all clear that we are, in fact, capable of answering this at all. We have no idea how to, to, um, uh, to come to that. And so the easy problem of, of value alignment is getting machines to reflect our values. It's a tough technical problem, but it's a solvable one. Whereas the hard problem of value alignment is getting our own values the way we want them in a, an ideal kind of sense. And so the limiting factor is, is not how close AI can get to reflecting our values. AI naturally reflects them. Our, it reflects our, our values and our biases and our society. But, but the, the trick is in, it distills them down to an algorithmic basis, and so we're confronted by the fact that we still do not yet know how to create the kind of society that we want, or even what the kind of society uh, that we should want should look like. And so we have to get our own values aligned first, and it's not at all clear that that's something that we're capable of doing, or the extent to which we're capable of doing it. I do think that, uh, you know, these classic age-old questions of ethics, meta-ethics, and even political philosophy. You know, what is the decision mechanism by which we're going to sort of determine uh, what most people want or, you know, should the majority rule, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of these things end up rearing their heads, as you say. Um, you know, there's a, there's a certain subset of people within the AI community that are moral realists. That is to say, they think that, you know, there are objectively true and false statements about ethics. Um, and there are some people who think, well, if there are objectively true and false statements about ethics, then probably some super intelligent AGI is going to be better than we are at figuring out what, they, what those truths are. And so we should just uh, accelerate the process of building such a system and, you know, let it take over because we're just these hapless apes, you know, messing everything up. Um, it has been interesting to watch some people who were, I would say, among the foremost advocates of that position 
over the years, like doing essentially a 180 and being like, oh crap, actually it turns out that you can make arbitrarily powerful AI systems uh, embody sort of any set of values or any set of objectives. And it's the, the odds of that going well are actually infinitesimal if we, if we take our hands off the wheel. So hold on a second. Um, this is known as the orthogonality thesis. Um, you know, a system, there's no, really no reason that a system, unless you take great care, will embody sort of the, the morally uh, objective truths versus, you know, um, something completely uh, random. So I think those, those classic questions really do loom. I mean, I think there's also, there are a few things to say here. I mean, one of them is that the term alignment is, was borrowed by Stuart Russell and the computer science community at large from the economics literature. So economists in the 80s and 90s were talking about how do we make a value-aligned organization? How do we align the incentives our, of our subordinates with the demands of our manager, et cetera, et cetera. And I think having that etymology in mind is really useful because it it's a reminder that alignment was never an AI problem first. It was a human problem first. It will be a human problem long after we quote-unquote solve the technical part, assuming we do. Uh, you know, if we can solve the technical part of AI alignment, then that will enable us to build systems that do what the people who've built those systems want. But we're still left with the broader kind of human, political, ethical issue of how do we align the people who build and control these systems with the many orders of magnitude larger groups of people that are going to be affected by them? Um, I think that's an open question, right? That's about governance. That's about politics. So that's still very much there. Um, you know, I think one, one rough analogy that I sometimes think about is nuclear safety where, you know, it's pretty important that we don't have nuclear missiles that launch at random or blow random things up or blow up on the launch stand, etc. But even after you solve all of those problems, and those are very significant problems because any of those accidents could trigger World War III or kill millions of people. So uh, those are very big deal. Even after you solve all of those problems, you are still left with the question of who gets to have their finger on the button, who, who makes these decisions, should we have these things at all? And I think that's sort of waiting for us with AI, even if we can solve the alignment problem in its technical sense, we're left with this question of uh, whose values are we aligning to, uh, who gets to decide, who controls these things. So all of that is, I think, very much uh, waiting for us on the other side. Uh, the, the last thing that I want to say uh, in response to your point, which I think is a really good point, is that this really is forcing a confrontation, I think a productive one, with our own values. It's, it's, a, it's a reckoning, a sort of unflinching reckoning. And that's part of what I think is so powerful, it's so profound about computer science as a whole. I mean, this is, this is really the heart of what drives my interest in computer science, is that it is a way to... It's sort of a feedback loop for, uh, you know, stress testing your own intuitions. I mean, anyone who's written computer code has had the experience of 
thinking that you have a clear idea of how to do something, how to solve a problem. And then you start trying to write the code and you realize actually you don't have a clear idea at all. But writing the code will clarify it for you. Um, And it might reveal that the thing you want to do is actually impossible or there's some latent contradiction or latent ambiguity. All of that, I think, ends up being um, potentially extremely profound in the context of some of these ethical questions. I mean, the criminal justice case is one example where, you know, all of these principles exist in the law in sometimes arbitrary, sometimes hand-wavy, sometimes internally contradictory ways. But then at the end of the day, we have to deploy something, or we have to choose not to deploy something. Um, Suddenly, you have to make all of these uh, kind of verbal principles or verbal commitments very explicit. And you discover, I mean, this is something that the book talks about, obviously. Um, One of the most fundamental things in the fairness literature are these impossibility theorems that say, okay, under certain conditions, you can't satisfy these equally, seemingly equally desirable properties. You just can't do it. You know, the, the math doesn't work. So I, um, I actually so think we should, yeah. we should, uh, if, if you could expand on that a little bit, because I wanted to sort of trace the moral arc that starts this. So you mentioned the, the ProPublica expose on fairness and in, in algorithms used for judicial decisions. And so can we say what exactly the, the parameters uh, of this this issue were and the the exact thing that was uh, you know that, that you're talking about here. So uh, um, you know we have this company that's shown that the rate of reoffending in their you know software uh, that's predicting you know uh, recidivism rates it is properly calibrated even across race. So if you're a two, you have the same rate of reoffense. If you're a seven, you have the same rate of reoffense. Reoffense doesn't matter if you're black or white. Um, uh, so that's what the company told everyone. And then ProPublica comes in and says, look, uh, but if, when you dig deeper, they consistently overestimate the risk of black defendants who didn't reoffend and underestimate the risk of white defendants who did reoffend. And the problem, as you're um, describing, is that the only way you can get these, these two uh, sort of metrics to line up in, in the real world is if you live in a, in a society where black and white defendants have the same base rate of offense, that they have the same overall recidivism rates. And uh, otherwise, if you get one right, mathematically, you are guaranteed to be fudging the other. Um, uh, yeah, I will add, I, I mean, that's basically correct. I will just add one thing, which is that... Uh, Many people, including the people that make the software and including, you know, a lot of the people that write about it, uh, talk about it through the language of reoffense and recidivism. I think it's really important to, to talk about it as rearrest um, because it turns out, right, and, and I, I think this ends up being one of the key points in understanding this whole space, that there's a non-uniform relationship between uh, the level of actual kind of uh, behavior and the rate at which people are arrested and convicted, you know? And so one of the things that the chapter emphasizes is that um, black and white Manhattanites self-report that they use marijuana at the same rate. But black Manhattanites are, if I'm recalling eight or 15 or something like this times 
uh, more likely to be arrested or to have some sort of interaction with law enforcement around this. And this is a classic machine learning thing, right? Uh, it is often the case that you can't directly measure the thing you care about, but you have some sort of proxy variable, right? You don't, you don't know whether someone liked a piece of content uh, in terms of how they actually felt about it, but you can observe whether they clicked the button or you can observe how long it was on their screen, things like this. So it is very often that you have these proxies, uh, of course, you have to be very careful because the proxy might not map in a uniform way to the thing that you really care about. And I think in the criminal justice arena, that ends up being a huge part of the problem, right? Which is that we care about uh, the committing of crimes, but, well, first of all, most crimes that are committed never become known to police. Uh, many, if not most, are never solved. Many people are arrested wrongfully or convicted wrongfully, etc. And these things are very non-uniform with respect to various demographic groups. So, um, yeah, as you say, once you have differences from one group to another, then the math breaks down in terms of you can no longer satisfy uh, all of these properties that are seemingly desirable. Um, and so there are many, many things that you can do uh, to address that. You know, there are many papers where uh, people explore the space of trade-offs, of how can you relax one constraint to mostly satisfy the other constraint, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are people, for example, the Partnership on AI has a paper arguing that we should only use these models when... Uh, these things are sort of perfectly observable. So the models that predict failure to appear in court, there's no proxy variable there because if someone doesn't appear in court, you, you know for a fact, as opposed to you don't know for a fact whether someone committed a crime or not. Um, and there are also, I think, ways in which you can work backwards from this impossibility theorem to say, okay, there's, a, there's, there's some upstream inequality that is affecting this particular model. There are things that we can do to the model itself to try to uh, deal with that in the most ethical or fair or legal way. Uh, but I think there's a powerful signal that something has gone wrong, like causally upstream of, of this model. Uh, you know, so I, obviously I don't think we're going to fix systemic issues in the criminal justice system by, uh, you know, specifically by intervening at the moment of uh, pretrial detention risk assessment. Uh, I don't think that can single-handedly overcome all of the other things that are happening in the system. But in a, I think, productive way, it can point us toward where the problem might be originating. Um, and so I think there's something very powerful um, about the, the struggle to sort of crystallize our ethical intuitions into code, into math, into, you know, constraints. Um, that can tell us something, I think, potentially much bigger 
about kind of the nature of the system as a whole or where the quote unquote, you know, real problem might actually be. Yeah, and I think a key example of that that you bring up in the chapter is uh, is about how there can be a long-term feedback loop when you're trying to do something like predictive policing. Um, so you have a line about how, quote, training data is used to determine the very police activity that in turn generates the arrest data. And you were sort of alluding to this to, to, some, to some degree, but basically... Uh, recidivism is not actually recommitting of offenses. It is, you know, recommitting an offense, committing an offense, then getting caught. Um, and so the, the implication is that if you're training, uh, if you're using the data that you have on, on recidivism rates, basically if an area is less aggressively policed, that's going to be tagged in the model as, as um, you know, lower recidivism rate. And then in turn, fewer police might be deployed to that area. And that would further decrease the model's estimate of recidivism because they're not going to catch as much. And um, so I think your your overall point on this is that uh, you're, and you're quoting someone here, uh, profiling on higher past, present, or future offending may be entirely counterproductive uh, with regard to the central aim of law enforcement to minimize crime. Uh, and so that at the end of the day, like that's not an AI problem. That is us having a problem. And then when we concretize it into specific mathematical formula, we're like, oh, yeah, that's totally fucked up. Why is it fucked up? Not because the math is wrong, but because how we do things has fundamental issues with them. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the core things here is that the moment you start changing your decisions based on the model, you have now violated the assumptions on which the model was based, right? So increasingly, I mean, this is part of the story that the book tells, is that these models are not standing apart from society, but they are part of the decision-making feedback loop that they themselves are modeling. Um, and in many cases, the math doesn't acknowledge that or account for that. Um, I mean, I think about models for something like COVID, you know, mortality, uh, COVID uh, risk, things like this, where if your model says, oh my God, everyone's going to die, then that generates a policy response where now everyone has, is forced to stay home. And then as a result, the model's own prediction has caused its prediction to fail, Right. Or if the model says, you know, everything's going to be fine, then everyone relaxes their behavior and then it ends up being worse than the model predicted precisely because of the model's prediction. So you need to find this kind of mathematical fixed point where what is the prediction that's still true conditional on the prediction itself, right? It's a very kind of interesting and unusual problem. Um, and I think something like that, you, you know, this is something people are actively working on in terms of you know, what's going on in the theory community. But we have deployed an awful lot of models that kind of violate this assumption in terms of they, they, they fail to account for the fact that the model itself is part of the system that it's trying to model and it's trying to predict. Um, and criminal uh, justice is a great example where if the model tells you don't bother sending any police into this neighborhood because we don't think there's going to be any crime, 
Well, now they're now you can't identify any crime because there's no one there to identify it. You know that sort of thing. Um, if the model is naive, then it's just going to view that as a sort of confirmation bias, right? Of ah, I thought there wouldn't be any crime there. That's why I didn't send any police. And lo and behold, there was no crime, you know, found. Um, so that's very much uh, at the forefront of what's happening in the criminal justice arena. But I think this is a broader thing around AI in society itself that, you know, increasingly, and you get this with recommender systems also, you know, they try to predict the things that you're going to click on, but they also determine the, the, the options that you have. And so, you know, the, the slate of recommendations uh, needs to be sort of, the recommender needs to acknowledge the way that it itself is constraining the, the choices. So I think that's a much bigger problem, you know, that affects pretty much all machine learning. Yeah. Yeah, no, you gave the COVID example and a, and a kind of similar example that you give in the book was on, I believe it was um, asthmatics and pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So basically they were trying to, you know, create a model that could predict whether or not someone was likely to die from pneumonia. And they basically found that, well, actually, one of the things that can be best for your prognosis as uh, someone with pneumonia is to also have asthma. And basically what they what they eventually realized was that, well, if you have asthma and pneumonia, then you receive better care, you receive the best care, and therefore we're less likely to die. And th that's why the model spat out that result. But then in turn, because the model spat out that result, you're also less likely to receive that high level of care uh, if you were just following that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the model is recommending that you deny the priority care from precisely the people who have benefited from receiving the priority care, because as far as the model is concerned, they seem to be doing okay. Uh, but they're only doing okay because they've received the very care that the model now recommends that they don't get. Um, that's a perfect example. And I think this is a, this is a great example where uh, it's hard to say in the abstract whether the model is wrong, because it depends on whose model it is. If it is the insurance company's model, then maybe there's no problem with saying, okay, the people that receive the higher priority care are quote unquote lower risk of various things. Um, because the insurance company, at least hopefully, is not part of the causal loop, you know, within the hospital. But if it's the doctor's own model, uh, and they're using the model to determine who receives the care, then there's a huge problem. And it's the same model. But in one person's hands, there's a huge problem. In another person's hands, there isn't. So man, that just kind of points to how thorny some of these things are. Hey, Cody here. So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here, hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means... I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? 
And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes, starting from my first interview over two years ago, and I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January. Then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influenced their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now, back to the show. So we started off this section of the conversation by acknowledging that you weren't necessarily making an explicit argument, at least not like a sort of here, boom, and hit you over the head with that, uh, and that you were sort of using the story to convey the the, the, the points that you wanted to convey. But there's this line. Oh, man, there's this line. On page uh, 325 in my, in my hardcover copy, um, uh, and I'm going to quote you here because uh, I think this is, this is it. This is a genuinely profound insight. And it's that, uh, quote, we are in danger of losing control of the world, not to AI or to machines as such, but to models to formal, often numerical specifications for what exists and for what we want. And that, to me, it's echoed throughout all of what we've been talking about uh, up through now, which is that, like, look, well, we started off worried about AI, but it's not really the AI that's going to get us. It's our own models, and they reflect, and, and the way in which they reflect our values uh, and how how those things are aligned that's going to get us ultimately. And that, to me, is a genuinely profound insight that builds off of everything that you talk about in the 300 pages up to that. That is a uh, crucial uh, and substantive but subtle shift from from how people often generally talk about what we started off thinking of as AI safety. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, so yeah, I'm glad you highlighted that. In, in some ways, that's kind of the, uh, the plot twist at the end of the book. It's like, wait, this is actually not a story about AI in, in some ways. Um, and I, 
I talk about that. There's a little bit of foreshadowing at the beginning of the book where I sort of mention that, you know, some of the models that we're going to be talking about basically are an Excel spreadsheet, you know. So Compass, for example, which does these criminal risk predictions, uh, is as as far as I'm aware, and I'm pretty sure that this is the case, it's a six-parameter linear classifier, you know? So this is basically an Excel spreadsheet. Um, In other words, all the way, your AI yeah. instructor from undergraduate would not accept this as proper AI on a final project circa right, this 2005. Is like, yeah, I mean, we yeah, we could talk about kind of the turf war between different disciplines, but I think at a certain point, you're just in in classic statistics. You know, you're not in machine learning at that point. Um, but, uh, right, so it ranges from, yeah, this kind of six-variable equation to these 100 billion parameter, you know, large language models that we have now. Um, but as you say, and as the book argues, you know, this isn't even really about machine learning as such. It's not really about statistics as such. Um it is about this issue of kind of formalizing uh, the, the things that we want. And I, I see this as kind of touching so many of the problems that we see in the world. Everything that the book talks about explicitly, of course, but also things like, you know, what's going on in the education system. It's like we have this desire for accountability we want to know which teachers are better than which other teachers. So we have this idea of, you know, we're going to have standardized tests. We're going to promote and fire people based on how they're, you know, the delta of how their kids do on the test relative to last year's test. And this has slowly, but, you know, perhaps predictably transformed the education system into basically like teaching people how to be good at taking tests and, and optimizing them for the, the test. Um, and it has also kind of predictably resulted in, you know, the deletion of any sort of curriculum that can't be easily tested for. Uh, because how do you even know whether you're teaching it well or not? Well, so let's not bother teaching it at all. Um, and there are many, many cases like this, right? I mean, I think you could also view climate change as a sort of an alignment problem, that we have all of these, uh, all of these metrics for the health of the economy or the health of a you know, society, whether it's GDP per capita or whatever it might be. But it turns out that there are these huge externalities that aren't part of that equation, and they blow up if you optimize only for the things that were in your formal specification. Um, so there was a, a passage in the book that ended up on the cutting room floor, but I was very interested in the development of uh, the, uh, the Human Development Index by the UN. Um, and the attempt to create some sort of formal measure of the health of a society that wasn't simply GDP. Um, and I think this is really a, a broad question that increasingly is a machine learning issue because we're just automating everything, but it's not fundamentally a machine learning issue. It is fundamentally about like, how are we going to sort of explicitly specify the things that we want? Um, and we are in a way at the mercy of our formal specifications in all of these ways. Um, and so I see this as 
really the defining problem of the 21st century. Well, I think that's a good way to sort of uh, end that line of uh, of inquiry. As uh, <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, yeah, I I I happen to agree with you in the uh, in in that context. And there's one last thing though that I want to sort of get your speculation on. It's a little bit more forward looking, a little bit more uh, kind of out there, a little bit of a pet theory of mine. Uh, before I, before I let you go here, but okay. Um, yeah, so this this is the basic idea. Hit me. So we know from studying humans that there's basically when you're thinking about intelligence, there are three time scales at which intelligence develops. So one is uh phylogenetic. So that is over the course of your species. Here is evolution creating a more and more intelligent system or at least you know different different kinds of intelligence this the intelligent system that we as humans are innately built with comes from this evolutionary process okay so that's one d- development of intelligence another one would be you could call it cultural or, or historical time so standing on the shoulders of giants as uh, you know, the the Newton quote that came up in our conversation last time. <laughs> That's right, uh, which I now have to restrain myself from putting in every book, apparently. which you now are going to be self conscious about when you uh, uh, re- when you write your your next acknowledgement sec- <laughs> section. I will be. And um, but that's 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 also a form of development of intelligence. We we can do things as um, uh, you know a species like buy and sell Bitcoin that we couldn't do. And that's not a function of evolution. It's not a function of an individual getting smarter over one's lifetime. It's a function of our, you know, species, uh, 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 you know, sort of undergoing cultural evolution. And then there's uh, the developmental individual um, development of intelligence. And this is going from a baby who cannot buy and sell Bitcoin to an adult who can buy and sell Bitcoin, probably doesn't know enough about cryptocurrency to, to do so wisely. Uh, anyway, the point is, is that all three of these timescales are very different from one another and are uh, based off of different processes. Of course, interrelated uh, because, you know, it's all about humans, but they're substantially different things and they're all important. And now, so when we shift our gaze to AI, I think when we look at the way AI is developed in terms of developing little artificial intelligence, um, we see things that are isomorphic to the developmental. So, uh, you know, people like Tom Griffiths and his circle mm. of people, yeah. um, you know, his, his mentor, Josh Tenenbaum, is obsessed with this question of how do we develop infant intelligence? Uh, basically, how do, we, how do we get to be able to do what uh, infants, babies, and that sort of stuff can do? Because that's where the, you know, the new ones we have that, oh, then we build from there. Okay, so there's a big strain of, of that sort of thing, AI. And also the sort of underlying... You know, you could think of it as the, the the evolutionarily designed system that is like the core sort of architecture of, of what it's capable of doing. You could also think of, um, uh, you know, AI also developing along lines. But so what's missing is that in order for us humans to have the intelligence that we need, we have to have some version of culture. We have to have interactions with other networks of, of, of humans to, to generate this shared understanding. And that is almost completely... Uh, uh, absent in the development of artificial intelligence. One uh, counterpoint to that is that when you have two AI systems, uh, for example, that play together, then 
uh, that turns out to work out really well because they learn from each other and that sort of stuff. But it doesn't seem like people are taking that to the next logical step, which is that uh, I don't know exactly what this would look like because no one knows what, like I said, this doesn't exist. But having some some piece of the intelligence building puzzle that is taking place at that historical slash cultural level um, uh that is something that's missing in AI that I don't think I, th- I think is going to be important to getting to the next level uh, that we don't uh, currently have a kind of is not built into our, our model of how to develop AI. So um, that's not a question. Uh, like I said, that's the pet theory. But I can you know, react. I mean, yeah, thoughts, question mark. Yeah, and this is really interesting. So I. I like your sort of elaboration of these multiple time scales. It makes me think of uh, Stuart Brand had a, some diagram where he's showing sort of these different time scales. And I think fashion, he says, is like the shortest one. Um, anyway, uh, there's there's a good intellectual tradition that that, that sort of framework is part of. Mine, just think, by the way, is drawn from Michael Tomasello, uh, primarily his 2000 Cultural Origins of, of Cognition. Oh, this, cool. That book really shaped my thinking about all this sort of stuff is when, and when this, this kind of concept uh, started germinating because it's unorthodox within cognitive science itself to talk about these three different um, things as different, different sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. th- that is why it has not yet been brought to the attention of the AI researchers. Because believe me, if cognitive scientists know it, they're happy to bring it to the attention of um, you know uh, AI researchers. But this isn't part of that that same dialogue, and uh, it's often happening around intelligence. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you're making me like the some of the work that I was doing with Tom, like back in the day, like back in the mid 2000s was on cultural evolution and he's one of the, um, the people who's done uh, a, a lot of work on that yeah so i think this is really important to highlight because the way i see it you know the human species has this major problem which is that the our our society exists with this like constant outflow of people dying and inflow of people being born but there's like a very obvious problem, which is that the people that are dying know a lot and the people being born don't, right? And so there's this like constant gradient that we have to keep educating people and educating people just to sort of stay still, right? We're on this kind of treadmill. Um, and so how can society move forward? I think one of the principal answers to that question is by kind of improving the information diet or improving, you know, the effectiveness of that education process. I think that is, broadly speaking, at least, f- you know, for the foreseeable time period, uh, the the place where we have leverage, it's, we don't have a ton of leverage in terms of making people smarter. I mean, there are arguments about nutrition and various things like that, and that's all real. But uh, we don't have a lot of leverage in, like, evolving bigger brains, at least not on a sort of tractable time scale. But where we have the leverage is like the curriculum design, right? And so first of all, I think that's like where a lot of the gains in human culture have come from. And so I think that's an important rebuttal. You know, there are people who talk about AI safety from the perspective of everything everything that humans have is because of our intelligence. Therefore, if we build something with more intelligence than we have, it will necessarily 
wipe us out or take our place or whatever. I, I don't necessarily disagree with the concern underneath that argument, but I think the argument has a flaw when stated as such, which is exactly your point, is that, no, actually, I don't think that everything that we have as a species is a product of our intelligence per se, because then how do you explain the difference between cultures or the difference across millennia? People are not more intelligent, right? Uh, so it is really culture, right, that makes the difference. And I think it is culture that determines why the world is better than it was 2,000 years ago, if, you know, assuming you think it is, or why some cultures, you know, uh, people are have a higher quality of life than elsewhere. It's, it's, it's really about this cultural factor. Um, and I also agree with you that that's kind of intriguingly absent from the picture of how we think about AI, right? So we have the evolutionary time scale of like, okay, we're going to go from uh, support vector machines to convolutional nets to transformers, right? That's the evolutionary process. You have, of course, the developmental process of like, let's watch these loss functions go down as we train this thing for 10 to the whatever steps. Uh, so what's the cultural piece? And I don't, I mean, I'm thinking on my feet, so I don't have a great answer. I think it's a very provocative question. Offhand, I would say the cultural piece is what are the training environments? What's the training data that's being fed to these models? Um, because it's certainly the case that you could have, you know, a 280 billion tr parameter transformer network versus, you know, a tiny support vector machine. But if the training data isn't rich enough or you don't have enough of it or the environment doesn't really reflect the environment you're going to deploy the thing into, then it doesn't really help. In fact, there are many cases where it's counterproductive because the bigger, the more powerful the model that you're using, the more it overfits your bad training data. So actually, uh, you know, the gap between what the model learns and what you really want uh, increases over time. And that, that's, that's a little argument for why I think the alignment problem is only going to get more important as we move into the era of, of big models. Um, but yeah, I think it, it just I'm underscoring your point that I think this quote unquote cultural piece of like, what is the curriculum uh, is in many ways like the least sexy <laughs> part of AI, right? Uh, but may end up ultimately being one of the most important. Yeah, and I think your, your answer about training data being the closest proxy for what we're talking about, I think, I think, that's, I think that's pretty incisive. I think that's, that's, that's true that like that is the thing that is the closest to some kind of uh you know cultural societal that level what you know the closest mapping between what, what's happening with ai and how human intelligence has developed uh and i think yeah like you said it just underscores how big the different how big the delta is there um because that is it feels much more impoverished and i guess what i kind of imagine is that like, well, if you really are looking towards your AGI kind of far future uh, scenario, I feel like lots of our progress 
from the evolutionary and the individual time scale is getting to the point where it's getting really, really powerful. And in order to have um, that paradigm shift to like the next kind of big leap in intelligence, it's about figuring out how to connect AI systems so they can learn from one another in this way. Like we've seen when you have something that's trying to play Go and you put it against the, you know, the, the other agent playing that, figuring out what the sort of scalable version of that is um, feels like a, that's, that's, that could be a, okay, here is the next frontier of um, AI in terms of something that looks qualitatively different. And I think part of the reason why we don't see people thinking about that is along the lines of something you said, which is that really AI and even for the most part, cognitive science people don't think in those terms. They think in terms of, look, here's Bayes' rule and here's how it's implemented in this particular individual solving this particular problem. And the, um, you know, it's unclear in that frame of reference where culture comes in and how to conceptualize it, uh, what function it serves, and what you get um, by adding in something like that in addition to just the sort of basic mechanistic um, hardware or software uh, material. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, this is something Tom and I talk about in Algorithms to Live By, is that, you know, Tom's research as well as Josh... uh, I think has done a pretty convincing job of showing us that people s- seem to pretty competently implement Bayes' rule under under the hood. You know that when people have familiarity with a domain such that they have the right inductive biases, they do a good job. Um, and predictably enough when they don't have good information, they don't have good priors and they don't do a good job. You know, so Tom and Josh have this paper where they look at, uh, people's ability to extrapolate, you know, how much money do you think a movie is going to make based on what it made in its opening weekend box office? Uh, they also had one that was like, how long do you think a Pharaoh will reign? It's one of my favorite papers of all time. I love this one. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, of course, no one has good uh, priors about pharaohs because... We, there was a poetry you know, one as well. As how, how long is, uh, you know, this poem going to be given that you know it's at least five five lines long? Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember uh, one of my poetry mentors, Dean Young, said that whenever someone is reading a poem and they announce section four, his... His heart sinks because he's like, oh, God, now how now most poems either have three sections or like 20. So um, how, how long is this? So, if, reading so his prior would, would, would like uh, be more informative than the average person who doesn't, you know, like no. And therefore, that's he right. would be successfully able to come up with uh, an appropriate posterior distribution. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, to your your point about culture, it's like, how do we build a culture that gives people the right priors. And I think there's a fundamental tension between uh, newsworthiness, right? Like it is for, for kind of competitive reasons, the news wants to portray the most kind of gripping salient stuff. 
and we can get into the business model of the news. But I think there's like a more fundamental thing there, which is that, uh, you know, all all communicative acts from one person to another are sort of undergirded by a desire to pass along, you know, some bit of surprising information. Otherwise, why are you talking? And so there's kind of a fundamental tension between communication, which is like fundamentally about, you know, the the differential between what's in your head and mine or the outlier event that you might not know about, um, and a sort of representative sample of reality. Uh, And so, you know, in a more kind of hunter-gatherer society, people are telling stories about the scary lion or the snake or something like this. Even if you don't see that many lions or snakes, you know, you want, you want to be prepared. You want to sort of oversample these like extreme events. Um, and that seems reasonable. And, you know, Tom and, and Josh have worked out models of like, okay, it's, you know, reasonable to oversample salient events up to a certain point. Um, uh, but how does that translate into the 21st century where you're constantly being bombarded with things that are sampled from the entire world. You know, if there's 7 billion people, someone is going to have an outrageous experience, uh, you know, pretty much every minute, every hour, certainly. Uh, how do you keep your priors intact? You know, so there was a, a book called The Sociology of Fear, I think, that looked at the news media in the U.S. over the 1990s, and it showed that, I'm, I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong, but it was like gun violence decreased by like 30% in America over that time period, but the instance of gun violence being represented on the news went up 600%. And so if you ask people, is there more or less gun violence, people say more, which is reasonable if they're using this kind of like familiarity heuristic. Um so I think there's a really deep question here in terms of what are the things that we can do to engineer society such that we're setting people up for success, right? We're giving people the right priors because we have a lot of evidence that with the right priors, people can make good decisions. Um, so what do we do to create a culture in which people actually, you know, the, the version of reality in their head... Uh, maps to the outside world better than it does now? I think that's a really interesting question, you know? And so in Algorithms to Live By, we suggest, uh, you know, you might want to consider consuming less news if you want the priors in your head to, to map to the re- real world. Uh, so there's, you know, that we, we throw that out, you know, as a, as a provocative and not entirely tongue-in-cheek suggestion, but I think it's a really open question. Yeah. Well, maybe there is an algorithm to live by two in there at some point where it's about uh, creating alignment between, you know, the way we think about things and how to construct a society that brings us in the parameters of how we think about things to uh, be able to do the things that we want to, to do. But uh, <laughs> well, I don't I don't know if you if you're setting me up for this. But uh, if you're not, it's a great coincidence because there there will be an algorithms to live by too that'll come out in uh, February, um, which is uh, it's called Algorithms at Work: The Computer Science of Human Interactions. Oh, great! And uh, oh, this wow. will be this is an audio series, so this is going to be uh, coming out as a mini series through Audible, 
And we're specifically looking at uh, distributed computing and what are the insights from distributed computing in terms of thinking about how multi-machine systems can work effectively together. <clears throat> and what are the implications for that about human teams, human organizations, human groups? Um, so that, that for us felt like a very organic way to scale up, uh, if you will, some of the, the computational approaches that we take in the book and start thinking about it. You know, the book takes this very kind of individual approach of you are this decision maker confronting something in the world. What do you decide? But of course, most of us uh, do our most important thinking and, and work as part of a team, a family, a corporation, an academic department, whatever. So um, that is the, that's the focus of the, the sequel. I love it. Looking at these uh, group interactions. I'm super excited to listen to that. February, you yeah. say? Audible. That will be February 2022. Yeah, through Audible. I will reserve an Audible credit for <laughs> <All right>. uh, <laughs> for that series. All right, um, great. Well, Brian, uh, I've taken up en enough of your time today, but uh, I will say that, gosh, you're one of my favorite people to talk to that I've been able to, you know, have the opportunity to talk to on this show. You are the first repeat guest, so empirically, oh, that's an honor. Empirically, yeah. you are my favorite, like in a in a certain <laughs> in a certain empirical metric. Uh, <laughs> but uh, well, it's an honor, and uh, the pleasure is mutual. Thanks. Yeah, and I guess I will I will wrap up by saying that it's always freshly inspiring to me that um, there's so much overlap between how we've come to sort of work our way through this set of of um, of problems and, and, and thoughts and issues, uh, which is starting off by kind of having the same uh, insight, you from Tom Griffiths, me from Josh Tenenbaum, which is like, oh my gosh, well, these sort of abstract questions I have about how the human mind works, we can actually get really specific about what's going on there by putting them within these mathematic mathematical computational sort of AI-esque frameworks. And then uh, slowly realizing over time in, in bits and pieces that what we want to do is not figure out what those um, specific lines of computer code are the best, you know, like predict what's going to happen in a psychology experiment as a computational cognitive scientist does, but to use this sort of motivating impetus of that to really try and bring that to this larger humanistic um, societal understanding. And you lose some of the glories of the, the computational specificity along the way, but, 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 but the ultimate, you know, sort of driving force being like, well, taking the original excitement of, yeah, we can, we can do, we can get a really genuinely important insight here, but ultimately caring about these things uh, that are at this much more level that are typically approached with narrative and these other things, whatever big picture society slash human, human problems. Um, and I, and it's been beautiful, uh, to see you work that out in your, uh, your, your canon of work. And I hope to do a little bit of, uh, uh you know, some, some, some of that as well in my, in my work as, it, as, it, as it comes out in the future. So there you I'll are. look forward to that. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brian. Yeah. Likewise. That was my conversation with Brian Christian. Thanks for listening. 
If you liked this episode, I recommend checking out my previous interview with Jeff Hawkins or the original conversation I had with Brian. And if you do feel you're getting something in the show, please consider subscribing or giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. Most of all, as I mentioned in the interim section there, I would really appreciate it if you could check out codycommerce.substack.com to subscribe to my newsletter or sign up for a premium subscription. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.